Morning, church. Good, glad to be preaching today. And uh, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the um, screen as well. And uh, if you've been uh, listening in or present for any of the sermons that we've been preaching over the last month or so, um, today is another devastating blow to our preferences. Uh, another hard word from Jesus, but for our own joy and good. So hopefully uh, we're going to feel both the conviction and the encouragement of Christ as he leads us into more uh, freedom and joy, uh, because today is about basically our pride and uh, how Jesus uh, confronts it and lovingly shepherds us towards humility by encouraging us towards greater servanthood. Uh, it's a wonderful passage. And as I was um, researching this week and doing some uh, study, I came across a story in Greek mythology about a character called Narcissus. And this is apparently where we get our word narcissism from. And uh, Narcissus, the story goes, was a really attractive guy, an absolute hottie, who had lots of fans and uh, lots of women loved him, and, but he scorned them all. He wasn't interested. Uh, he, he wasn't interested in dating anyone or anything like that. Uh, and, but one day he went to the stream to go get some water. And he looked down and he saw his reflection. And he was so smitten with his own face that the story goes he never left. And he stared at himself just amazed at his own beauty and until he actually starved to death. That's the story. And uh, while that is an extreme version of self-obsession, I think our culture today can in some way relate. If you just think about social media, maybe, a lot of it's great, but some of it is just feeding our own self-centeredness and self-obsession. Uh, we have a, a, a tendency towards self-focus. And uh, what we desperately need, actually, is the freeing grace of Jesus to free us from our self-focus and free us to love and serve those around us and to be set free from the, our own need to feed our recognition and significance and, and pride. And there's something amazing that happens in this passage we're reading this morning as Jesus lovingly calls his disciples to a different life that they would experience this freedom. So let's read together. As I said, it's Mark chapter 10 from verse 32 until verse 45. And it says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, something Jesus did regularly, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they answered, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. 
Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Just such a great passage there. And I think what struck me initially as I read this was how Jesus starts this passage by again, and he does this several times with his disciples, he again told them what will happen to him and what's coming, that he's going to suffer, but that he will conquer and rise again. And they somehow just miss it, or, they're just, or they just don't care because very quickly the story turns to them asking for what they want Jesus to do for them. And their request is quite bold. And he's, James and John come to Jesus and say, we want to be at your left and right hand on the throne. Like, can we get dibs on, uh, on the glory seats, please? And I think there's something going on in James and John in the context uh, that would maybe just uh, provide a sort of mirror for our own hearts, is that they are um, hungering for a kind of glory. They're ambitious to be recognized and to be put in the seat of honor. And this is not the first time that they would have this kind of attitude and posture in their hearts. Uh, Earlier in Mark chapter 9, again we see that Jesus tells them something of what he's going to suffer, and they respond by having an argument about who's the greatest. The disciples are saying, oh, I'm the best, no, I'm the best, no, I'm the best. And they're arguing with each other. That's their response. That's the posture of their hearts. And here it happens again. And in Luke 22, uh, there's a recording of, of during the Passover meal, uh, just the night before Jesus um, is, is taken away, they are having the same argument about who's the greatest. And so this kind of pride is just central. It's just so evident and, and obvious in the lives of the disciples. And I've been so encouraged by the grace of Jesus as he lovingly um, interacts with them. You know, I don't know about you, but pride has a way of, of um, irritating us, doesn't it? It has a way of getting under our skin and offending us. And you may um, be, be inclined to want to cut people down to size a bit when they express a bit of pride, or, or maybe when someone else inflates and elevates them above what you think they should be. We just need to cut them down a few notches. Pride irritates us, but even in that, our desire to cut people down to size, isn't that an expression of pride itself on our part? You see, we can't get away from this. Pride is so much a part, not just of these guys, but of our lives. We want to be seen to be best and better. It's so much a part of who we are. And even as we maybe listen today and as we listen to many other sermons that, that bring some sort of conviction, is we, we tend to hear it and be thinking about all the other people who, who need to hear this. 
when really God is trying to do a work in our own heart, we carry with us this pride. We just, it seems like we just can't get away from it at times. It just it, it creeps up and, and uh, flows out of us, maybe at unexpected times and even in hidden ways. And so often the problem is that we're so blind to our own pride. That everyone else around us can see it, but we are unable to see it. And that's what pride does. It blinds us. But this pride, thank the Lord, is not, um, it's not separate from his unending grace. He, he comes to love his disciples through it all. He's so committed to them. They still become apostles. Jesus doesn't cast them off. He, he is committed to transforming them to be the kind of people he wants them to be, to help grow humility in them and become the kind of leaders he's calling them to be. And same for us. We have the hope of, un, of unending grace towards us, and there is hope for change. And um, today I'm going to look at three, three points, three things, three um, maybe blocks of this text. The one is an internal heart posture. Uh, the second is, I have to look at my notes now, I can't remember my headings. The, the next is an upside-down call. And then the other one is an essential uh, ransom that we need more than anything else. So as we look at this um, call of Jesus, what he does is very interesting. He says he deals with their pride by calling them to become the least of these as servants. And so as we look at the first point, an internal posture, I think we have to recognize and agree that like James and John, we have an incredible desire for honor and glory and recognition, and approval, and to be seen to be significant. At times, it might be particularly noticeable in your life. At other times, it may be a little bit quieter and a little bit indiscernible, but it's there. It's within each one of us. We contrive ways to move up the ladder without often giving much thought about going in the opposite direction. But Jesus here tells us that we have to deal with the idol of self, we have to deal with the idol of self-focus and self-absorption. Um, and there is just a posture within us that Jesus wants to change and reorient and help us as he moves us towards being like him as servants of all. And so as we look at James and John, there's clearly some kind of ambition that they've got going, going on here. And maybe this reflects us. They want to be the greatest. They want to be at the left and right of Christ. Maybe we wouldn't quite go that far, but we certainly want others to think highly of us. And this pride is just, as I said, it's throughout everything and it's, it, it's contained in the need to be better than others. And if you're looking for a sort of definition of, of how this works, C.S. Lewis is very helpful and he, and he says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And see, by nature, how competitive this pride is, it's this need to one-up and to be better. And of course, this is incredibly destructive to our relationships. And so Jesus says, no, you must serve because this is how he's going to grow the kind of uh, people he, he would long us to see. It's also an incredible gift to us because 
living in that kind of way is incredibly destructive to yourself. You'll, we'll have to live, there'll always be someone better than us. So if that's our desire to be the greatest, we're going to constantly scramble anxiously to work our way up the ladder and in turn burning ourselves out and wearing ourselves down and eventually becoming maybe um, just depressed or whatever it is in, in many ways. I know that's a complex issue, but Jesus comes to free us from this idol of pride. And this is good news for us. And I think it's evident throughout Scripture that God, uh, this is one of the verses, God gives, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it comes out again and again and again. And he is so committed throughout Scripture to helping people grow in humility because this reflects the heart of God. God is not proud. He's humble. He's the humble king. And so his heart is to free us by helping us become more like him in that way. And if we just look throughout Scripture, some of the stories of how this works, of how God grows people in humility before he uses them, or how people have to become humble and must be humble before God will allow them to be used greatly. This comes out again and again. You look at the life of King David, and his brothers did not get chosen to be the king. But then uh, David gets seen, and, and God says, this is a man after my own heart, because there was something of an inner humility in his life. And you think of Joseph, for example. He starts out by boasting that his brothers are going to kneel down to him. And he's very proud about this. But then he gets his brothers uh, Solomon into slavery, and then he gets thrown in prison. And uh, through the years, God does a refining work in his heart to root out this boasting, to root out this pride, to make him humble. And then in turn, God raises him up to use him mightily. Same with Moses. He gets raised in the palace of the Pharaoh. He is... Uh, educated in those ways. He's very privileged. But then because he's a Hebrew, he's different. He, he sort of gets kicked out and he goes back to his people in the wilderness. They spend 40 years roaming around the place. And it's only when Moses is a very old man that the story of Exodus as we know it comes to be. God has done something in his life over years in making him a humble man. There's even a verse, this is quite hilarious, in Exodus about uh, Moses writing about himself, about how he's the humblest man in the earth. But it's true, God had to do something in his life. And I think what we have to come by here again and again and again, the, the emphasis of Scripture is that God embraces and loves and moves towards those who know that they do not have it going altogether, those who know they're broken, that those who know they aren't self-sufficient, but again and again, as we see in the life of Jesus, maybe even with the Pharisees, that those religious people who think they're all that, who think they're better than others, who think that uh, they've got it all together, who are more uh, legalistic, those are the ones he opposes. So he opposes the proud, even if they're very, very religious, the issues is that they're thinking they're better than others, but he moves towards those who know how broken they are. This is the pattern of Scripture. And I've been so encouraged. We had a great conversation um, this week uh, as a staff around Luke 15 and just uh, the prodigal son. Uh, we know the story of the prodigal son with the younger uh, child, but uh, just to sort of bring us up to speed, the father has two sons, the younger brother and the older brother, and the younger brother um, wants to leave home. So he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I'm out of here. You're basically dead to me. So give me my inheritance now 
and I'm going to leave. And he leaves, and he squanders the money, and he, he lives it up. He lives his best life now, and uh, he, he soon becomes bankrupt and desperate. And he comes to his senses, and he says, oh, man, I've really messed up here. I'm not worthy to, to come be a son again because I've rejected my dad, but maybe he'll employ me as a farm worker. So he comes back, and before he's even got to the house, the story tells us that the father rushes towards the son and embraces him and brings him home and throws a party, and it's an amazing story. It's an, that's a picture of God's rushing heart towards those who know they are undeserving. But the story doesn't end there. And the more we look at that story, the more we see that the prodigal son, the one really needing saving, more than anything, is actually the older brother. Because while the, the, everyone's celebrating the return of the younger brother, the older brother's not celebrating the return. The older brother's angry at his dad because he has stayed behind. He's been faithful. He's been working the whole time. He has been uh, pr productive and he's been bearing fruit and he's been working hard. And so he goes to his dad and says, Dad, what is this about? I've been faithful for you, slaving for you, working for you all this time. I've been serving amazingly. You've never thrown me a party. You've never honored me like this. You've never given me any recognition. And you see, the father lovingly says, my boy, it's about this younger son who was lost and now he's found. But you see something about the older brother that is, um, showing pride. He's saying, I've been faithful. Why, do I am not, why am I not getting the honor and the recognition? And there's something of a longing for approval and recognition and significance in his heart. And I think if we're honest, this reflects us in ways we don't even realize sometimes, but it comes out uh, at times that we have a longing for approval and recognition and honor and glory. And so I'm going to ask some questions now. I'm just going to rattle off a couple of questions that I just want you to think through quickly as, as we kind of look into our hearts and see where this may be in us in some way. How do you feel when someone else gets the credit when you've done more of the work? Are you able to celebrate the successes of others without feeling overlooked? What happens in your heart when someone else gets what you deeply want? Do you feel intimidated by the gifts of other people? Do you define yourself by your successes or failures just a little bit too much? What's your reflex when someone disagrees with you or questions you? When someone confronts you about your sin, do you respond in defensiveness? Or offensiveness? Or do you repent? Are you teachable? Especially with those younger and less experienced than you. When God convicts you of something, or when you're listening to a sermon that is convicting, does your mind naturally run to all the other people who need to hear it? Or are you letting God work on your heart? How do you feel about those who seem less committed to things than you are? We could keep going and going and going on these. Our hearts are, are, are a minefield, and this is so complex. And I think one of the reasons it's so complex is because our, our motives are often just so mixed. 
often we serve and we love with the best intentions, but then it just creeps up that, hey, hang on, I didn't get enough recognition for that. Or, hey, I didn't get noticed for that enough. And our hearts are just a, an absolute minefield with this stuff. And so Jesus says, this is the way of the world, but he says, not so among you. I've got a different kind of life for my people that I'm trying to call you into. And so how does Jesus change our hearts and help us become more like him as we grow in humility? Or just be more humble, right? Stop being so proud. Is that, is that how it works? Of course not. No, he says something else. He says we need to become servants. And so as we look this upside-down call of Jesus over our lives, this is how he turns self-centered pride into selfless humility, is that he calls us to serve. There's a, there's a guy by the name of Richard Foster who wrote a book, Celebration of Discipline, fantastic book. And uh, in one of the chapters, uh, he says this. He says, More than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of service. Humility, as we all know, is one of those virtues that is never gained by seeking it. The more we pursue it, the more distant it becomes. To think we have it is sure evidence that we don't. Right? It's like someone coming to you and saying, hey, what's your best, best personality trait? Yes, I'm humble there. Eh? Of course, that's not how it works. He grows it in us through something else. And here's the argument Jesus is making. Richard Foster is helping us see again. It's through service. Richard Foster, again, he, he, he carries on. He talks about how, how serving kills the pride in us. He says this, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. This is profound stuff. This is profound stuff. And I think what uh, Richard Foster is helping us see there is, is our, again, our desire for honor and recognition, and that's why we have to be recognized and why we hate an anonymous serving Yet at the same time that this is the central way God has ordained that we would become more like his son, that we would be laying down our life. And here's the complexity of it all, that yes, it's true that serving leads to a, a, a growth in humility and Christ-likeness, but not all serving is done in humility. There is so much pride in us that some of our serving, even in our serving, there's sometimes like a weird veiled sort of pride. It's just a complex issue. And so the counterintuitive call of Christ is that he would call us now to be servants. And that if, if you want to move up in, in the Christian world, the only way up is down. It's the upside down call of Christ. This is the way it works for us. There's no place for thinking we're better or that God prefers us because we serve more or that we're more faithful, or that we're better because we're better at 
how we serve, there's no place for that. Jesus calls us to think less of ourselves and move towards servanthood. Because here's the thing, and I think this is, this is the essence of why this is so important, is that he's not calling us uh, or giving us a task to accomplish. He's inviting us into becoming more like Christ through how we live. So this is not something to do, it's something to become over time as we give our lives to this thing. So that's why Jesus not only uses the word servants, he also says slaves. He takes it a, a step even further. And I'm not sure that word has made its way into church lingo. I've never heard it being really used on a Sunday. We talk about serving teams. We don't really talk about slavery teams, but I know it may feel like that at times, but Jesus wants to emphasize something here. There's something of a laying down of our lives because that's what he did. That's what he did. And so he's inviting us into transformation. I think when we talk about serving, sometimes we, we move or, or volunteering, whatever it is, we, we like to think of it more in terms of contribution. I'm, I'm playing my part. I'm, I'm, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm giving back. It's good to give back. And, and yes, it is that. We don't want to be consumers. We want to be participants. Um, but we want to be so much more than only that. Uh, and what, what Jesus is saying here is that it's not so much about contribution. It's more about transformation as he grows um, Christ-likeness in us through how we serve. This is a discipleship issue. God does something profound in us as we serve. And so what we need to do is what Christ is doing here. He's redefining how we uh, think about greatness. We define greatness by fame and authority and success. He's saying if you want to be great, you must become the least of these. He defines spiritual greatness as growth in Christ-likeness. And I think as I've been just reflecting this, we forfeit so much of spiritual joy and freedom when we're pursuing the worldly definition of greatness. And it's just so um, the tendency and default of our sinful hearts is to pursue all of that. But again, the call of Christ by the work in us, by his spirit, is to help set us free to do more of the serving as he helps us become like his son. And um, I just want to make this clear this kind of servanthood, I'm not just talking about the church. Of course, that, that's beautiful. But I mean, in all of life, this is an identity, not just a Sunday identity. This is a Sunday for who you are, what God is doing in your life. So how may you serve more like Jesus in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, at work, with your friends? Just think about the different avenues of your life and what servanthood might look like. Why is this so important? I've already implied it and said it a few times, that this is so important because it's at the center of who Jesus is, of who God is. Andrew Murray said this, being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as men created in the image of God. In other words, we've been created in his image and he is, in, by definition, uh, like a servant. This is how Jesus has defined himself. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. So this is something about the essence of who our God is. So growing in those ways is the fulfillment of our highest destiny in becoming more Christ-like, like he is. 
let's look at Philippians 2, chapter, um, chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. And this is what Paul says as he's describing this journey of moving from ambition and pride to a growth in humility through service. This is how he describes it. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And so this is something amazing as we look at the life of Jesus. This is, uh, it, he talks there, Jesus, he, he talks at the end of our passage today, verse 45, as we've already said, that he, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For many. So this is, he's our essential ransom. And so if we look at the formula of both what Jesus says today and Philippians and throughout Scripture, it's the same thing. Don't be proud. Be humble. This is how Jesus did it. He gave his life and he served. And we have hope to be like him. It's just so amazing as I've been reflecting on the life of Jesus about how his default, even though he was God and had every, um, any, every right to come in and demand glory, he chose for our good to embrace obscurity. We don't know anything about the life of Jesus before he started his ministry when he was 30. When he did start his ministry, he lived meal to meal and he was homeless. He didn't care about his reputation, especially when it came to the Pharisees. He didn't base any of his worth on accolades. He loved and served the crowds, but his default was to get away from them as quickly as possible and to places of seclusion. He wasn't interested in fame. He didn't lust after control and power or position. He's the ultimate picture of a servant because he is the humble king. And for our good, he has died to ransom us. This is the Christian journey, is to follow in the footsteps of our master becoming more like him in, in what he's like. But the good news, friends, is that this is not just something to imitate. This is not just an example. This is salvation. And Jesus says, no, it's not salvation that, that, that we would serve. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm saying what we need before we even start to think about serving is to be for, forgiven of our sin. And this is what Jesus did. He says that, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Just amazing news for us. That word ransom, like any good uh, hostage movie. The hostage gets taken, they demand a ransom, and the ransom must be paid for them to be set free. That's exactly what's happened to us. We've was, we were in, stuck in bondage to our sin, in great debt, needing to be forgiven, and yet being unable to pay it without dying ourselves. And yet what Jesus does is he comes. He takes our sin on, onto himself and dies on the cross for our sin in our place as our ransom. And he pays the price to set us free. So we can sit here today with just great freedom and joy knowing that if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, 
Jesus is your Lord, you have been set free. And I know that this is a, a weighty thing we've been talking about all day, but the good news is that we can rest again, that our great servant has come to serve us by being our ransom. And we can just enjoy and receive, receive the grace of that again this morning. And uh, we're going to take communion just now as we remember and celebrate and thank God for this incredible gift of grace to us once again, our great ransom. In... Um, in Luke 22, this is um, sort of Luke's version of, of, of our passage today. And the disciples have just been having the same argument about who's the greatest. That's the context. And so Jesus says this, um, and he just includes this, a little, a little one-liner that I think I want us to end on. Is, he says, but he said to them, the, king, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. And here it is. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But here's the good news. But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the good news of Jesus, that we get, we get to come to the table. We, we get a seat at the table because he's done all the work to serve us and love us and ransom us. And again, as we come to even the communion table this morning, we get to remember this one who has served us in the way we needed most, with what we needed most, and given his life as a ransom for our own sin. So we're going to take communion. If you see your cups there's sort of two layers there. Uh, one will be for the wafer, and then another one will be for um, the juice. Uh, but let's just pray together. Christ, we want to thank you again for the amazing sacrifice you've been for, for our good, that you have come to redeem us and forgive us. And I just pray this morning for uh, perhaps those of us are, who are looking into the story of Jesus or just beginning of our, our journeys, or for those of us who, who feel like we have lost our way and we're trying to fight our way back. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would um, encourage us that it's not about our effort and how we scramble our way to you. All our hope is that you have done all the hard work to come and find us. And you are coming again to find us again today and every day. You are so committed to saving your people and keeping your people. You have done everything to initiate uh, our, our faith and our relationship with you, and you will do everything to sustain it. And we cling to you, God. We just pray as we've um, spoken about our pride and the state of our hearts. I pray, God, that you would continue to help us see ourselves more clearly, that you would uproot these um, stems of, of pride in us, and that you would help us grow to become more like your son, Jesus, as we serve and as we rejoice in the one who has come to serve. We remember you now and we celebrate you. Amen.